Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 123, 123. Look at us. Uh, today we have an excellent, excellent interview, and I was privileged and honored to have this person on here, Dr. Lise DeGeer. She is a clinical psychologist. She also, at the age of four, suffered a major, major burn situation. She was burned third-degree burns on over 65% of her body, two-thirds of her body, and uh, again, at the age of four. And so we talk a lot about that story and the lasting repercussions. Now, over 50 years later, uh, she's written a book and put it out. Uh, as of the day of our recording, that book is out now. Uh, it's called Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. And uh, boy, what a story on all aspects, from the family level to uh, her own personal level, dealing with kids in school and uh, all the things, the surgeries, the skin grafts. Uh, and through it all, the word resilience, uh, that's the name of the game today. That is the theme of our episode. That is uh, something that I think we all can learn from and learn to do better in our lives uh, everybody, as she pointed out towards the end of our interview, spoiler alert, she talked about she doesn't th really think anyone isn't suffering right now as it relates to this COVID situation, plus all the other multiple things going on in various areas of the world. Uh, our hearts go out to people suffering with fire situations and other weather situations and wars and uh, awful things going on in the world that cause a lot of uh, pain. But she talked at length about uh, reframing those things, finding joy regardless and especially the principle that whatever we're going through in life, there's always uh, an element of joy and things can get better and frequently do. So uh, I don't want to go more into that. Just listen to the interview. It's coming right up. I just want to remind you as always up front as uh, we always do, you are absolutely priceless. Uh, you are above the monetary systems of this world. Your price exceeds all of that in, in terms of every level of value, your ability to grow and learn and progress and be something, uh, whatever you might be. And we all face an uphill climb in this, in this world to get to some of those places. Uh, but you are priceless and your ability to overcome, regardless of what's gone on in your life around you, what people may have done or said to you or or maybe feeling less sometimes when someone may have something different or perceived as maybe better or whatever the case might be it's just it's just not true these are little uh, delusional lies that we tell ourselves or if anyone's telling you anything to the contrary uh just tell them nope you're wrong i'm priceless phil told me and like who's phil and then you can have them come listen to the podcast and they'll find out so you are absolutely priceless and by the way you're never alone along with that so remember that you're not alone reach out if you need to info at empowerhumans.com uh, at empower101 on instagram and on twitter and uh, you've always got friends, family, neighbors, I hope, in your world, co-workers, whoever it might be, that uh, maybe a roommate, uh, or reach out to an old friend on Facebook if you need someone to talk to sometimes. Uh, there's all kinds of ways, and of course, my, my door is open, so come reach out to me. And uh, of course, I want to remind you of our challenges. Study, start studying, keep studying. If you haven't been studying, Find something that you want to learn that you can set a fire within yourself, so to speak, that you can build a drive within yourself to want to keep doing it. Uh, if you're not into algebra, don't study algebra. If it's something that's part of your career, maybe study algebra a little bit, but study other things that are going to really uh, put that drive in you to continue with it. There's literally millions and millions of books 
audio books. Uh, there's things you can study uh, all over the internet. Find things that are true. Make sure they're, you know, if you want to learn things in the nonfiction realm, uh, you can also study and just work on your reading. Read some fiction. Uh, escape a little bit from some of the difficulties of life at times. And by the way, you deserve to be able to do that. We're doing our best to try to balance our lives. But study, and I, I can't say enough about that. I do that with my boys. We read every night before bed and uh, all kinds of things like that. So find a way to develop those habits. And of course, uh, our other challenge, make great moments. Make those with loved ones. Uh, that's surprising people. That's uh, <laughs> just finding ways that we can bond with each other, the people that matter in our lives. And uh, that can be also people that you don't know. Make great moments. When you see that guy on the side of the road, someone told me a while ago, if you ever <laughs> just decide, okay, every time I see someone asking for money, I'm just going to give them five bucks. Maybe you'll go through a hundred bucks in a year. Maybe you'll go through a little bit more, maybe a little less, whatever it is. And whatever their situation, whether sincere or not, doesn't matter. You're still, you're still going to be uh, in a better place mentally, emotionally, spiritually by doing what you can to lift somebody else if you have the means to do so. Or find some other way that you can give a proverbial $5 out into the world on a pretty regular basis to help somebody. Or a dollar or 10 cents. Whatever you can do to uh, lift others will indirectly, uh, or I should say really directly, come back on you and lift you. I just know that from experience. I say that with conviction because I've experienced it. And uh, so make great moments in any number of these ways we've mentioned and more. And the last challenge, of course, let's keep doing this podcast together. I'm so excited for this interview and I'm so grateful for you. Go share the podcast. You've got uh, all kinds of ways to do that. Uh, write a note and, and put it on your friend's windshield and all these things I've been saying. Or social media. That's simple and easy and it doesn't involve uh, wasting a piece of paper and upsetting your neighbor. Uh, <laughs> they might not be upset. They'll enjoy the podcast. But uh, do what you can do to share it as well. And uh, I just can't say enough again about Dr. Lisa DeGear here. You are going to really love this interview and uh, her perspective and whatever you've gone through in your life, it'll it'll help put perspective on all of that because she's been through quite a surreal chain of events and uh, suicides and other things. Uh, this is very serious topic matter today. So without further ado, buckle your seatbelt. Here we go with our interview with Dr. Lise DeGear. We are honored and privileged to welcome Dr. Lise DeGear, who is a uh, clinical psychologist, right? And uh, also author, book released today, the day we're recording this. Uh, <laughs> the book is Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. And I wanted to invite you on because I'm fascinated by this story. Um, not a lot of people have experienced it. We've heard stories, we've watched the news, but to actually have been in a situation like that. And at a very, very young age, right, Dr. DeGear? Yes, I was four years old. Mm -hmm. yeah, tell, yeah, tell me a little about that. Um, your childhood, I don't want to just necessarily dive right in, but I kind of do because uh, it's the basis of a lot of what we're going to talk about today, especially involving resilience. And of course, also congratulations on the release of this book today. Um, but tell me a little about that story and maybe your childhood in general. Do you remember much before the age of four? And then tell me what happened, if you don't mind. Oh, I'd be, I'd be glad to. Thank you for asking. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy to be here today. It's a happy day for me, and it's, I'm glad to share it with you. Yeah. So uh, I was burned, uh, terribly, terribly burned in a fire when I was four years old. Mm -hmm. um, I only remember a tiny bit of this fire, but um, I know a whole lot about it from um, recollections that my father gave and uh, 
insurance documents that were drawn up and all kinds of stuff. So I have a actually very good understanding of what happened, even though, as you say, I was quite little at the time. Yeah. The, the fire uh, happened uh, on our first day of vacation. Uh, I was with my family, my mother, father, my older brother, Mark, and me. And we had just driven up to this little cabin in New Hampshire, uh, which, thank God, was on a lake, Lake Winnipesaukee. And so it was our first night there, and my mother decided to um, barbecue us our dinner. She and I were on one side of this outdoor porch, and my father and my brother were on the other. And there was only one entrance off this porch, and all along the porch was this uh, crisscross fence. You have to kind of picture a bunch of X's in a row. It's a crisscross fence. Yeah. So my mother... Uh, got um, a can of something she, I guess, thought was lighter fluid. And she went to pour it on um, these charcoal briskets and went to light it. It didn't light. So she put some more on. Mm. And at that point, a tiny little flame that I guess had lit from the previous attempt shot right back up into that can of what was actually not lighter fluid and exploded all over my mother and myself. Mm. Uh, my mother in one quick instance um, saw that we were trapped behind this wall of flame and she took off. She left me there. Um, she ran down the steps, threw herself into the lake and saved herself. Uh, and I was left there, you know, by myself trapped and alone. But my father uh, saw me and jumped his side of the fence and ran around and was just able to reach me through that crisscross fence. It was mm. just small enough to be able to be pulled through there. And he uh, carried me down to the lake and threw me in there and I was saved. Yeah. Um, this was in 1967. And mm. I cannot tell you the odds of my survival being burned 65% at the age of four, third degree burns. Mm. In 1967, the odds against my survival were very, very small. Yeah. But uh, I happened to have a brilliant surgeon and, and here I am. Wow, what a story. I can't, uh, I can't even imagine, sorry for, to hear about that. Uh, and and there, I have so many questions. These things are, I don't like to use the word fascinating, especially something like that, as if as if I'm a spectator of some someone's pain, because that's that's not even the right word. But I I'm interested to to understand what's what's happened within you, and as at such a tender age, at the age of four, I've got kids myself. They're eight and eleven. I can't even imagine. I remember when they were four. Uh, they're boys. But uh, did, by the way, did you have any siblings? Uh, if you don't yes. mind asking. Yes, I had um, had an older brother, Mark. He was five years older than me. And um, that is a, a whole other sad tale that maybe, maybe we'll get to in a little bit. I think if I okay. start to talk about him now, we'll be taken away from where we are and, okay. and where we are is important. Okay. Well, we might touch back on that then. Yeah. Um, and we should. <laughs> yeah. We should. We yes. And now the audience will be, okay, we got to touch on that. Okay. But so back to this, what happened in 1967. Um, uh, so what, what happened in the immediate aftermath? You're, I presume near Lake Winnipesaukee, you're in a secluded position. You're not next to any 
I mean, I don't know if there's a nearby fire station or hospital, uh, but what would I mean, you may again may not remember, but you sounds like you've read the, the aftermath kind of reports. Um, what what happened next? Yeah. So, um, good good question there, Phil. So what happened was. Um, this cabin was in the middle of nowhere and um, there was exactly one ambulance that came to the site and that ambulance took my mother and my father um, put me in the car and uh, he drove us to um, the local hospital. And along that drive, it was just he and, and me in the car. And I'm like lying down in the front seat crying and he's mm -hmm. driving he uh, decided that there must be something he could do to help me feel a little better. And we had just seen the movie, The Sound of Music, mm. and we both loved it so much. And so he started singing, and he was singing to me, uh, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Mm -hmm. and, and he's like, come on, sing with me. And so we sang. And we sang all the way to the hospital. And in that hospital, uh, yeah, in that hospital, the doctors took one look at my mother, who was also burned, not as badly as me, not nearly, but she was burned, and me, and said, there, we, we can't do anything for you. But uh, we were one hour away or so from Mass General Hospital, which at the time was the best hospital for burns in the country. Wow. And so we were taken to Mass General, and that's where they saved my life. And it's always so ironic to me that, you know, here it, it's such a sad and unfortunate story. And yet, right there at the same time, I was taking, you know, I was happened to be <laughs> near uh, the best hospital for burns in the country, probably the only place that could have saved my life. I had... Um, one of the preeminent plastic surgeons in the world. Wow. And um, eventually I became a, a Shriners kid. Uh, they took me on as their charity case. And that meant that I got all my burn care for free. So it's interesting how you can be so unfortunate and also so bizarrely fortunate mm -hmm. at the same time. Yes. Wow. What an interesting uh, set of circumstances and what a poignant moment to be singing from the sound of music in such a uh, yeah. surreal and traumatic, let's say, moment as that. And in yeah. the aftermath, again, I've, uh, I, I, I've been slightly burned like most of us at some point in our life, whether it's, you know, any various, you know, I worked at a Waffle House and I got burned, a little thing, but it wasn't anything like what you're describing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. uh so what is the risk in exactly in, cause you talked about saving life. So on the flip side of that coin is potentially death. Is it the burn itself that could have killed you or is it the kind of the aftermath infection that would have happened or maybe a combination of, of both your tender age as well? I mean, uh, maybe that's kind of a dumb question, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it's a great question. And I'm not sure that I know all the answers to it, but I know a bit. Um, and by the way, if, if readers are interested in knowing, or listeners, excuse me, are interested in knowing more about burn care, there's a great book by this uh, author, Barbara Ravage, 
and she talks about um, burn care at Mass General where I, I was saved. And, and it's really fascinating um, article, uh, excuse me, book, and it explains a lot about burn care. Anyway, to answer your question, um, I believe that there's a number of stages to surviving a massive burn, mm-hmm. each of which can go terribly wrong. Um, the, the first stage is uh, often involves people will have um, breathed in the fire, so their, da- their, their lungs can be damaged, um, right. and that often kills people. That, thankfully, did not happen to me. Um, and there's a whole stage about fluid stabilization Mm. which I don't understand. And I'm sorry that I don't, but no, I don't understand. Okay. Something about it, the fluids in the body that can, again, you can actually drown um, as the body tries to reconstitute itself. Yeah. And then, yes, infection is a major killer because if you don't have skin, uh, germs can get into your body, you know, uh, lickety split. Uh, and, especially if you're already medically unstable, it's very easy to die from infection. Mm-hmm. I, I myself died, almost died twice is what I was told. But, uh, you know, again, here I am. Here we are 50 years later. Uh, yeah. 50, yeah, 50 years plus. And I, now as, as we talk about this too, um, two thirds of your body, you suffered third degree burns, which is very, very serious. And uh, what, what happened after, the, because I understand you talked about plastic surgeon and these doctors. Uh, what was the recovery? What, what did we have to, we being you and your family, presumably, what, what did you have to go through in the aftermath of this, uh, which I assume was just a few seconds from what it sounds like moment between well, your mother running to the lake and your dad saving you is probably all less than a minute. Uh, but then... Yeah we have these repercussions we're still talking about 50 plus years later, of course. Um, but so what in those immediate days, weeks, months after what, what did you experience? Um, yeah. And so again, I, I feel like you, you understand a lot about this journey already, which is awesome. Cause I feel like a lot of people don't know too much about burn care. Uh, recovery from a massive burn like that is essentially something that you can do. Mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, for me, um, the, the, the initial stages um, revolved around getting grafted. And for people who don't know what that is, third degree burn skin does not regenerate. It is so deeply burned and so deeply damaged that it will not grow back. Mm-hmm. So the only way to have skin is to have the skin from other parts of your body taken from there and move to the part that's been burned away. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that process is painstaking and incredibly painful. And you have to do it many times. Sometimes grafts don't take. Mm. And then also grafts shrink over time. Um, they, they don't stay the same size as they start. And if you're a little kid, you're growing. Yep. So you have to keep getting grafted to accommodate the fact that your body is, you know, getting taller and wider. In addition to that, um, I, I, I came out of the fire without a bottom lip or a neck or a chin. Mm. And my arms were fused to my side. 
So all of those parts of me needed to be rebuilt. And all of this took years. Um, not that I was in the hospital for years. I was in the hospital the first time for five months. And, and then I went back many, many times. And I would just go back, uh, you know, once or twice a year for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stopped in my 20s. But I have resumed uh, going back in my 50s for something that is a really new and wonderful thing that's happened in burn care, which is um, the advent of using lasers uh, for scar appearance. Um, So I'm getting that done now. I've had about 15 of those. So burn care for me is a lifelong journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds like it. it. It amazes me. And again, in the big picture of things and my audience knows I sometimes pan out to the big, just the big picture of life how one moment can have such far-reaching repercussions and we all have maybe stories in our own lives or know of stories uh, of, of these sorts of things and you're you're still uh, thankfully living is the verb we're using but you're living with it still to this day again over 50 years later and and as a child so tell tell me about uh what transpired also as it concerns, you know, other kids going to school. Um, I don't know the full scope of your story completely, uh, but talk to me a little bit about some of that. Was there bullying and what other things went on with this? Again, 65% of your body burned and then going through all these uh, surgeries and, and recovery. Yeah. So, um, I, I look pretty good now, um, but again, this has been years and years and years of um, medical help. <laughs> yes. And when I was in school, I started, you know, kindergarten as a five-year-old, like every other kid. And I, I really, I was hideous. Um, I was, I was horrible looking. You know, you can imagine I barely had a lip at that point. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and new burn scars tend to be very brightly colored, um, so quite noticeable. I would say that uh, kids who knew me, I, I've always been good at making friends, uh, thank God. And kids who knew me were wonderful, usually, yeah. kind and caring. But kids who didn't know me were brutal. Um, and I was uh, taunted and teased and bullied and made fun of. I had kids who would run past me in the morning walking to school, and they would just run past me and go, yuck, you know, as I, like, walked alone to school at five years old. And this was a, you know, this happened, I don't know if it was every day. It certainly felt like every day, but it was definitely every week. Um, People were brutal. Yeah. Um, And even, you know, I will say that – even when people aren't being brutal exactly, um, mm. it is a very difficult thing to be stared at. And I think anybody listening out there who is disfigured will understand that. It's very painful. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can only imagine. And I, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I, I wish kids weren't so brutal. And I wish yeah what what can we say i mean are, are parents supposed to in my case i'll just say as a parent 
I've always told my, and this isn't to toot my horn or something. I've always told my kids, if there's someone being picked on, if there's someone who's different, looks different, acts different, you be their friend, you stand up for them. And, and maybe at some point that'll be my kids too. I don't know, but so far it's not, but uh, what, what can we say to both uh, people, kids in general, especially who are going through this sort of thing, whether it's just something, uh, whatever it is with their own physical appearance that maybe they don't feel good about. And, and clearly you have an authority to speak on this topic because yours is such an extreme case. Uh, you know, other people might just be a little more overweight or feel like they have a big forehead or, you know, all these little things that so many kids make fun of. What do we have to say to those people, especially, you know, kids, adolescents, and even into adulthood, and then the parents of those kids? Do you have anything to say uh, in the realm of the resilience and encouragement or maybe some counsel to parents (laughs) as well? I know that's a broad, far-reaching question. It is a broad question. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best with it. Um, because I feel like there's a number of answers to what you raise as a, a good panoply of questions there. Um, I think the first thing I would say is that it's really important for parents to have um, a, a warm and, and caring relationship with their kids so that their kids will tell them what's going on. Um, you know, I myself didn't really have that, so I suffered with it most alone. Mm -hmm. But I think kids who feel that their parents are behind them and their parents believe in them um, already are, you know, way ahead of the game. Uh, So the kind of relationship that you're talking about having with your kids, you know, that's what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the kids who are going through this, I, you know, I think if you're being bullied, hopefully kids feel that they can, again, tell their parents or tell their teachers. Um, I think as a society, we're getting better at treating bullying as the serious problem that it is, as opposed to, you know, 50 years ago, honestly, it was more like, well, suck it up, you know, <laughs> really, that's, that's really how it was. Yeah. Uh, and I think yeah. we're getting better with that. Um, yeah. And for the kids who are going through this themselves, um, you know, I think if I were talking to a kid who was going through this like me, I would probably say things like it this will get better it won't always be this way and um you are a wonderful person and concentrate on the people who love you as opposed to these other people Mm -hmm. because they're those people don't they don't they don't have the honor of knowing you and if they knew you they wouldn't act this way yeah Mm -hmm. and and it's just like you explained the, the kids who knew you were wonderful, I believe is the word you used, and they treated you well and probably yeah. to some extent defended you in some hard moments, I would imagine. Uh, but, and, yes. and, that's, and that to me is, is a deep message, I think, for all of us to take from this uh, is get to know people. Let's stop judging by, we built a society around appearance and that's appearance of everything. So we have to yeah. appear we're rich. We have to appear we're successful, appear we're beautiful. And all, all so many multi-billion dollar businesses are built around how things look. Uh, everything from cars to people's faces and wrinkles and all this stuff. And, and yet when you get to know people, by and large, we find that most people are really, really good people. And like, as if it's your fault, you didn't choose 
that path. Who would choose to have burns like that? Uh, this was an accident. So I think parents, we parents need to really uh, educate our kids even more and not so much more these days than in the past. I think we defer to the schools. If the schools, we, we got to teach this stuff in the home of acceptance and, and love and, yeah. and how we, how we actually look at each other through a different lens and, and maybe from just wanting to get to know people past whatever appearance is there. Um, so yeah. what, what kind of, can, can I, go ahead. Can I more? Please. I'm sorry. Just thank you. I just wanted to say two more quick things about this that occurred to me that I think that are really important. Okay. So one more thing I would say to a child going through this is to encourage them as best they can to make eye contact and say hello to people who are staring at them or making them feel bad. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times um, I find that that made a big difference that if you could immediately, if, if I could humanize myself uh, and remind people that I'm just a person. And by the way, I still go through this. It's, it's better now, but it's not, I still have this. Mm -hmm. It still happens to me. Little kids will stare at me. And if I can look at them and smile and say hello, at the very least, they stop staring usually because they realize they're, they're being rude. But sometimes yeah. it, it helps them like, oh, you're just a person too, just like me, you know. So that's another thing I would say. And finally, I want to give a little um, encouragement if there, are, if there are people out there who are burned listening to this, that the Phoenix Society, which is an organization of burn survivors, does a lot of work on helping people with social skills and managing bullying. Um, so they're a great resource. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you added that. Um, I'm writing some of this down. I take notes. Uh, so <laughs> in, the, in the wake of all of this, and I've been saying that phrase more or less uh, a few times here, uh, aside from the actual events and the difficulties and some of the mistreatment, what were some of the lessons that you learned through all this? Because I know you talk a little bit about uh, your parents and some element of neglect and things as well. Uh, would you like to touch on any of that and, and then all the lessons that we can uh, think of in the aftermath of this? Mm, sure. Yeah, so my, my parents, um, you know, and, and God bless them, they're, 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 they've both passed away at this point, as has my brother. Um, my parents were well-meaning. Um, they meant no harm. Um, but they were just not equipped to be parents, really. They're, they were pretty self-absorbed and had a lot of problems themselves. And so consequently, they really were not able to be there for me uh, or my brother in, in, in some pretty major ways. And, and we both really suffered as, as a part of that. Mm. I think one of the big lessons that I talk about in my book is the idea uh, that Many times, not just in my story, but in many, many stories, mm -hmm. um, the people that we think should be there for us are not going to be. Maybe they're mm -hmm. not able to be. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're too troubled themselves. Um, maybe they don't want to be. And, you know, the, our, our family members, sometimes close friends, sometimes they, they fail us. But uh, on the other hand, um, 
it is my experience that the universe is full of wonderful people. And that if we focus a lot on those who are not coming through for us, we will miss entirely all the people who are. So for example, uh, my plastic surgeon that I mentioned to you, my world famous plastic surgeon, um, was a wonderful man. And I mean, I was alone in the hospital for almost all of my procedures. That's a whole other story, but really I was alone. And, and he became my person, you know, he, he's the person I saw every day. He's the person who asked how I was. He's the person who gave me hope. And I could give you 20 more examples like that of people who have come through for me in such a loving and devoted way. And if I spent all my time upset that my parents didn't come through for me, I wouldn't notice all these beautiful people who have. Wow. That's interesting. My goodness. I, I, what you said is so profound. And so I keep using the term far reaching because I think people, myself included, can relate in various ways to that. What you said about the people who you would think and that should be there for you oftentimes aren't for any, any number of reasons, uh, whether they're not well or they don't want to or, or whatever the case might be, but that you found uh, hope, solace, and support in others, including this plastic surgeon, apparently. Um, since you mentioned your brother again, and to avoid neglecting that topic, would you like to get into that story a little bit, uh, Mark, and, and what happened there uh, through the lens of resilience, which is what this this uh, book is, is all about, uh, Flashback Girl, um, the, among lots of things, but your story in general. But do you want to touch on that? Are you comfortable getting into that? Glad to talk with you about my brother, Mark, who was my favorite person in the whole world. Uh, Five years older than me. Um, An absolute genius, my brother. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, really, I'm not exaggerating. He he really was. Mm -hmm. Um, Graduated high school early, went to MIT, you know, virtually perfect board scores. I mean, wow. And plus, just a great guy, like, you know, lead drummer in the band and um, very (laughs) kind and warm and and terrific guy. And he took really good care of me. I think, you know, he understood that I needed help and he, he really gave that to me for 19 years. And uh, Mark had many problems. He was depressed. um, And I think he was mostly depressed because of what was happening in our family. And he was neglected. And really, nobody was looking out for him. And eventually, you know, really tragically, so um, he took his life, he, uh, he took his life at, at, uh, at college. And um, that, you know, you'd think that the Fire was the worst thing that ever happened to me, but really it's the loss of my brother, Mark. That is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, Hmm. And, oh no, please, what were you going to say? I, it's, it's more, I can't, I can't put into words. Honestly, your story is is making me a little emotional uh, because just the level of loss that you've experienced 
And on the flip side of that, the level of resilience and uh, you, it sounds to me like you've been able to uh, center yourself still and find peace, meaning, and joy through it all. Uh, but I'm so sorry. I have brothers myself. You know, I can't imagine from both a sibling and a parent standpoint, that kind of loss. In my case, thankfully, I haven't experienced anything like that. Uh, you know, I've known some stories close close to home, but not not like that from home, so to speak. So I, mm-hmm. truthfully, I'm somewhat speechless. I'm just piping in with support more than anything and some love, <laughs> even though we don't know each other. <laughs> I appreciate the support and love. I truly do. I I I will say that um, it is. I think. It's the contrast between what happened with my brother, who mm-hmm. was much more gifted than I, mm. versus what happened with me. You know, here I am. I've actually built myself a really beautiful life. Um, I'm, a, I'm a psychologist. I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm married. I have two beautiful daughters. I have a lot of friends. Like, I have a really good life. If you looked at me now, you'd be like, what a great life, you know? And, and back in the day when all this started, you would look at me and say, oh, my God, I hope that poor girl makes it. And so the contrast between my mm-hmm. journey and what happened with Mark is, I think, the thing that really set me off on trying to understand resilience and trying to uh, help other people and now, uh, you know, as a psychologist, I mean, and now um, writing this book in an effort to connect with as many people as I can to say, you know, look, you too can be the most unfortunate person you've ever known. And that doesn't mean your life is over. And that doesn't mean you can't have a beautiful life sooner or later, you know, hang in there and keep going. Yeah. And I appreciate, and it's an echo of some of what you said earlier to people who are going through something now that it, it gets better. You know, it reminds me, you, you may not know, there's there's a band that's not around much these days called Good Charlotte. They had a song called, I think it was called Hold On, but it's, a lot of what you're yeah. saying reminds me of this song because it's about uh, the idea of people taking their life. And it says... I just remember in the chorus, it says, hold on. If you feel like letting go, hold on. It gets better than you know. And as you talk about your life now and just that you, again, I'm getting a little emotional, but as you've been able to to come through all this, you have your two daughters, you have your husband, you have your successful practice, you have your book coming out today and congratulations. And it's hard to see that sometimes that bigger picture of, of where you can be in this much better place through these hard moments. Um, so, mm-hmm. yes. and thank you for opening up and, sh- and sharing that. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And, and these days, uh, a lot of people, are, you know, I hear these stories and I haven't confirmed, but I, I heard, for example, in California a few months ago that within about 60 days, they had about a year's worth of suicides uh, oh, with God. this pandemic and all these things. And again, take that with a grain of salt because I haven't gone into the records and confirmed. I don't know that I'd want to <laughs> go confirm that fully, but I heard, it, but I think it makes sense to all of us, if nothing else, that suicide rates have gone up. Whenever there's a, yep. a big crisis, pandemic, uh, economic thing uh, that tends to happen. 
Um, do you have any insight or thoughts on that topic, especially having experienced it uh, in a very intimate way in your own life uh, and, and how resiliency can somehow play into all that and this big picture thinking? Um, what, what is your school of thought, let's say, on, on that topic or how can we lift people with regards to that topic? I mean, again, um, there's, there's many questions wrapped up in, in what you just said. Um, I'm sorry, I do that a lot. <laughs> no, no, I'm good, I'm with you. Okay, um, I, I think, I, I will say, I think September is Suicide Awareness Month. So it's, it's, we are talking about a timely topic. Um, you know, first of all, I just cannot stress the importance enough of good mental health care. Uh, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. This is what I do. Um, I, I, I just strongly urge anybody who is struggling with that kind of thinking to connect. Uh, certainly the easiest thing to do is to call the hotline, but the hotline, the suicide awareness hotline is not, is not the same thing as mental health treatment. I think there is um, there's a big place towards connecting with somebody who can um, give you strength and um, a safe place to work things through. Yeah. So there's that. Um, there's medicine, which can be just awesome. Really, really help people um, keep going. And I will say, you know, as a course of what I do with my clients who, the, the ones who struggle with suicide, a lot of times it's just getting people to say, okay, I, I can keep going another day. Yeah. Um, make it through this day. Uh, there is a possibility that tomorrow will be better. And by the way, it almost always is. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just getting people to see that no matter how extraordinarily in pain and miserable they are in this moment, that doesn't mean that this moment will last forever. And in fact, it doesn't, right? Everything's temporary, including misery. Yeah, excellent point. Very profound. And that's, uh, that's something to keep in mind. And I don't, I don't want to uh, minimize that topic with some sort of analogy, but the analogy I would say has to do, and I've used this analogy in various forms sometimes, but exercise in general is a form of suffering that I'm not going to compare to depression and suicidal uh, thoughts. But there, one of the reasons we do exercise, those of us who do, is is having that brighter moment afterwards <laughs> because exercise is, is not always pleasant and you, you get sweaty and you go through some pain. Um, but it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a somewhat apt analogy for life because there's ebbs and flows and cycles and seasons and days and nights. And there's, there's just, we don't need to get caught in a moment is the point, whether we use an analogy or not. And I, and I appreciate your, your insight and certainly you're very well qualified to, to speak on that topic. Um, yeah. Do you have any insights as a psychologist? Clearly, we're not going to get into specific patients or things, but these are things that I assume you deal with uh, on a regular basis on various levels. Um, how, how should, what should people ask for when they go for help? I mean, I'm a, I used to be very prideful. I've been through a divorce and things, and I was, I was always, you know, I'm not going to, we're not going to go to counseling because... I'm better than that. I'm independent. I don't need that. And I realized, I think just about everyone can benefit from counseling, married or not, 
whatever age. Um, but what, what are your thoughts? Again, multi-layered questions. What, <laughs> what are your thoughts as it concerns people seeking mental health help? And, and what can they do? What can the psychologist do? What can they ask for? Hmm. Well, I mean, I will say that I am entirely certain that I would not be here talking to you about my beautiful life and my successes and the people who love me if I had not been in therapy. And, you know, I, I was in a lot of therapy with really wonderful people who really helped me. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, you know, I, I, I am a good therapist now, but I used to be a good client. (laughs) And um, yeah, I think that a good therapist, um, at the very least, offers a safe place for a person to talk honestly about what they're going through and to feel heard. And I say that at the very least, but that's actually a lot for a lot of people. There are, I mean, so many people either don't feel like they have a person to talk to or they have people and those people are just saying, oh, buck up or, you know, it'll be, you know, uh, not, uh, not offering helpful, you know, feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or maybe those relationships are the actual problem. So uh, that, you know, safe place to be honest and to be heard um, is huge. And, you know, in addition to that, um, sometimes there's, there's, tools you can give people in terms of managing um, what we call dysfunctional thinking, dysfunctional thought patterns, helping them uh, with healthier thinking. Um, There's, you know, advice about, you know, as as you mentioned, exercise that is so important, advice about exercise and nutrition and getting sleep, things like that we work on. Um, And then I think at the very deepest level, as a therapist, you can help a person understand how their history might be affecting what they're, what they're going through now mm-hmm. um, and how to make different choices. Um, and sometimes really helping a person understand how they themselves are contributing to the problem. And that's a hard thing to teach a person, but some people are really open to that. They want to know, oh, oh, I see my own behavior is half the problem. Some people aren't up for that, but the people who are usually get a lot from it. Yeah, <clears throat> that's that's a great point because, yeah, what ends up happening, some some of us get a little prideful where, oh, I don't want to face my involvement in this problem. And maybe they're a victim of something or whatever. In your case, you're an innocent uh, victim of, of an incident that had nothing to do with your fault. Uh, and so if people have some blame in how they've responded in the aftermath, sometimes, in my experience at least, sometimes we humans don't want to face that because it wasn't our fault to begin with. So why should we be to blame now? But but we are responsible. Right. I don't like the word blame necessarily, but we are responsible for how we respond to things. And it's it's it, I just feel like it's important going back to this thing about appearance. I think that's a lot of reason, maybe in my case, that I avoided some of this for a while. Uh, that looking like you you don't have it all together or something. No, we can't do that because that's that's not the American way or the way of the world. You've got to always 
at least show put forth this facade that everything's perfect but coming to a realization and and an honesty of, of what we're really feeling there's there's something freeing about that isn't there um i think so and there's something you're saying that i i, I really want to um kind of highlight a little bit it is my experience that more women than men are willing to go to therapy yeah because i think more men are are feel this pressure to be uh, you know, self-reliant and have it all together. But interestingly, the men who come to therapy are often, I don't want to say always, but often really great clients because they're, they're so interested in getting tools to, to feel stronger again. And they're usually really willing to work very hard at it. Um, so uh, that's the working with men I find not always I there's you know for every generalization there's an exception but that's something I've noticed yeah well thank you for noticing that and and for pointing that out um that makes some sense and men and women tend to think a little differently towards things um I had, I had a therapist talk to me about some preconceived notions I had that women are uh emotional and all these things and there are tendencies in certain directions but she said to me this this particular therapist that there's just as much very logical just as many logical thinking women uh as as there are men and vice versa on the emotional side and stuff yeah. and so uh yeah we yeah. we, we got to kind of dispel these preconceived ideas and and then this this clinging to how we look because there's nothing that's empty there's nothing to that. Yeah. There's, there's no uh, lasting joy, peace, happiness uh, in just clinging to how we look <laughs> in some way. So. That is for sure. Somebody told me once that, um, and I, I forget exactly how they put it, but they said investing in a partner because of their looks is like investing in the most rapidly reducing commodity you can find. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a depreciating thing, you know what I mean? You're, you might marry the most beautiful, beautiful person in their 20s and that that will change <laughs> yeah Physically. it's like buying a new car for uh, as an investment you already lost five thousand dollars driving off the lot in value you got it yeah <laughs> so yeah great great point indisputable i uh now as, as i think back uh to your story and these 50 years 50 plus years why why did we wait 50 plus years to tell your story Mm. Well, that, well, first of all, the beginning of all that was me working really hard to get better, right? Physically and emotionally. I was certainly in no position to tell my story in the beginning. I was just trying to, um, you, you know, survive yeah, and uh, build myself a good life. But at some point, I started to wish to tell my story. And and I did not do that until both my parents had passed away. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually literally started writing the book the month after my mother died. And I sat mm -hmm. down and it, it's as if the book just wrote itself. I mean, I sort of couldn't stop writing it. My family was like, what's the matter with you? Because all I did was write, you know, every, every, I mean, not exactly, but it felt like it and and i i wrote the book within a year um and it's you know 290 page book so uh 
I felt that I, I knew that my mother would not like um, that I wrote it uh, because I'm honest about uh, my family and myself included. I'm, I'm honest about all of us, our limitations and, and mistakes. And I knew that my mother would not like me to write the book and I didn't wish to call her, cause her any embarrassment. Um, and so I waited until everybody was gone. Mm. And I'm the last to gear now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Is there something about that? I don't mean to pry or dig in and you can say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. But is there something about that, that the timing is uncanny? Your mother passed away and I'm sorry to hear that. And sorry for yet another loss. Uh, but the timing of a month after that, you start writing, was this a coping mechanism? Do you think to some extent that you, because you said you just couldn't stop writing a book wrote itself essentially. Uh, what was it about you being the last of this generation of this family, I suppose? Um, what, what led from that to let's jump into this, writing this book? I mean, I think my, my parents had a very high opinion of themselves and they were neither one of them ever good at noticing their problems and their limitations and the fact that they really, especially my mother, actually did a great deal of damage to Mm. me, to my brother, to other people too. I have a stepsister who died. Excuse me. I had a stepsister who killed herself. I had a stepfather who killed himself. There have been four suicides actually in my family. Mm. Four. And uh, and I'm not saying, oh, that's all my mother's fault, but I am saying that um, there was some pretty bad stuff that happened yeah. in our family, and she was part of it. Um, so she would never acknowledge that. And if I were to put that out when she was alive, I don't even know what would have happened. So I waited until she was gone and not, you know, not in a way to like diss my mother, but in a way to say, look, this is my story. This is my story. This is what happened. And it's a pretty incredible story actually. And I think it can help people. Yeah. That's really interesting that you, that you explain all that. And, uh, I don't know your mother, never knew your mother. You, of course, better than probably just about anybody knew your mother. Um, but that's, uh, that's interesting. And uh, I can understand why now telling your, your real story from your perspective that she may not have really even tried to understand, at least during her presence uh, here. Uh, I could see some, some of the reasons why you might have, why you might have waited like that. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, as we shift gears a little bit to a, a, maybe a more broader picture of this topic of resilience, um, wh- what do we have to say as people face various degrees of challenges? You know, uh, whether like in my case, I went through a divorce or someone might, you know, break their arm or there's all kinds of challenges people can deal with in life or a burn or the pandemic. And like in my case, my kids want to go back to school. Uh, they, they don't necessarily <laughs> like all that school entails, but they like having the camaraderie and the friendships and the uh, just having other kids around. Uh, people are going through all kinds of just weird life shifts right now. And then other challenges and there's health challenges and people with COVID and other uh, not that that's all on all of our shoulders, but what principles can we convey 
of staying grounded and uh, centered and at peace in the midst of the storm, so to speak, whatever that storm might be. Another big mm-hmm. multi-layered question. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's great. And um, I, I had a, a fairly, well, I'll shorten it. I was going to say I have a long answer for that, but I'm, I'm going to shorten it. So um, I go out now and I, I do a fair amount of speaking and I always start with my story and then I move into talking about, you know, resilience and what is it and how can we help ourselves um, be more resilient? Because there's some aspects of resilience, let's be clear, that are inborn. Um, there's just kind of basic temperament um, that is inborn. There's a genetic component, component of resilience. We can't change that. That's how it is. Uh, there's, um, you know, economic privilege that is, uh, helps with resilience, you know, that you're, you're lucky enough to have that or you're not. Uh, but there are some things about resilience that we can work on. And I came up with a little, um, mnemonic, um, which is goals plus M and M. And so the goals G stands for gratitude. Um, gratitude is highly associated with resilience. O is optimism. A is active coping. L is love, like the love around you, the love you receive, like my brother. S is social skills. Um, and then the M and M stands for meaning making. Um, people who are resilient tend to be people who find some kind of meaning in what they've been through. Um, so for people who are religious, that tends to be easier to find because there's a feeling of like, well, God, you know, never gives you more than you can handle. And God wanted me to learn this or go through this for whatever reason. But, you know, you don't have to be religious in order to find meaning in life, for sure. Um, you know, for, for myself, for example, I find meaning in the fact that, yes, I've been through terrible things and those terrible things help me help other people. You know, whether it's through being a psychologist, uh, through my practice, and now through, you know, putting out my book, Flashback Girl, like trying to reach people and say, like, yes, yes, you can get through this. Just hold on. Um, So anyway, that's a, uh, I feel like that's a very involved answer to your question. I hope that's okay. (laughs) I have very involved questions sometimes. So, (laughs) Um, and thank you for sharing that. I like that. the goals kind of acronym and I, and I made notes, gratitude, optimism, active coping, love, social skills. And I think you said meaning making at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Meaning. Let's talk about the meaning making for a second, because um, whether that has to do with a somewhat toxic relationship, as in the case of between you and your mother, sounds like um, I've had versions of toxic relationships in my world. I think a lot of people can relate to that and not just toxic relationships, but whatever may have happened pleasant and unpleasant in our lives, how do we, meaning making sounds so uh, responsible that you're making the meaning. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make uh-huh. me responsible for all aspects of whatever may have happened or in a relationship and whatnot, but um, it, it's owning your, your part of what you do about it, it sounds like. Talk to me about meaning making as it concerns resilience and overcoming these things and even toxic relationships. Another, again, multi-layered question. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, when I work with somebody who's going through something terrible, um, we don't start off talking about meaning making. 
You know, yeah. usually we start off talking about, uh, you know, again, like I said before, just getting through the day. Are you sleeping? Are you eating? You know, are you safe? Um, are you getting outside? Are you getting exercise? Just getting through the day, surviving the pain, right? Yeah. But at some point, um, you know, the pain lessens and, and it's not so acute. And then gradually, uh, the conversation often does shift to um, what have you gotten out of this terrible thing? What have you learned? Um, for many people, what they learn is uh, a lot of people will say, I've learned to be more empathic. Um, I don't judge people now. Now that I've suffered, I don't judge people and say, well, just get out of bed, like keep going. Like, you know, they, 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 they say they've become a more um, sensitive friend. Yeah. Um, uh, some people will say, you know, because they've been through what they've been through now, they're able to help other people going through the same thing. So maybe they become a volunteer um, for whatever they've been through. You know, like you hear a lot about, for example, people who've um, survived cancer become often, you know, people who fundraise for um, cancer causes or maybe they visit people in the hospital. Um, so they make meaning that way, you know, helping out in this cause. Um, yeah. Some people fundraise. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I, I think... I think there are a million ways to make meaning out of suffering. And I don't think there's one right way, but I think it's important to find that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that's that you one of the things. What? Go ahead. Sorry. No, please continue. <laughs> uh, it's well, yeah, that's, I think it's very empowering to what you just said about there's a million ways to find meaning and just, just that concept alone, I think can, can, give people who are suffering a breath of fresh air. Oh, there's a million plus ways, perhaps. Let me, let me find some of them. And again, like you said, fundraising or various other things you can do to, to go out there. And a lot of times it, this common thread, it sounds like is lifting others because of what, what you've been through. You become kind of a pillar in some ways of, of really being able to understand and empathize with others in a similar plight, whatever that case might be. And, uh, and that's, I like that you're pointing that out. And, and one of the things that you point out too, in your, in your acronym, the first word is, is gratitude. Is there a reason other than the word goals starts with a G? It seems like gratitude should be probably the, one of the very first parts of getting past difficulties. Uh, you know, I remember mm -hmm. Tony Robbins used to say, you can't be grateful and angry at the same time or grateful <laughs> and lots right. of other unpleasant things at the same time. Uh, what is it about gratitude that's so powerful? Yeah, um, I wish I knew the exact answer to that. I will say that um, <laughs> there's a, a very famous psychologist um, whose name, of course, is now escaping me. I hate that. Anyway, he's out of UPenn, okay. and he studied um, authentic happiness. That, that was the name of his book. Mm -hmm. And he discovered that gratitude was one of the two most important things in determining whether a person was happy or not. Mm. Um, and uh, when you are grateful, you are by necessity focusing on the positive and not the negative. That's what's in your head. Um, so for example, I told you already, 
my story, uh, one, of, one of the stories that really I think is very important in my story is this idea that, that okay, I was burned horribly, um, you know, permanently disfigured, you know, went through years of excruciatingly painful procedures. Um, and also, I was taken to the very best burn hospital in the world. I had one of the best burn surgeons in the world at the time who was incredibly kind to me. And I got all my surgeries for free. Mm, yeah. I'm pretty grateful for that. <laughs> so that, I mean, it changes the story right away. Right. And I'm not saying that, you know, the sad things didn't happen. They did, but it's really, I think, incredibly uplifting to focus also or more on the thing the good things you know yeah. sometimes when I talk with clients about gratitude I'm like you know sometimes the only thing you have to be grateful for that day is like you know you liked your sandwich but you know like it like you like that sandwich like really enjoy it you know that's okay that if that's what you're grateful for please enjoy that sandwich fully mm. yeah I I appreciate that perspective and and you talk about all the the good points in the aftermath of what happened to you. Is there anything about the, the event itself that happened to you that you can look back on life? And I want to be delicate in how I word this, but is there any way you can look back at that event itself and be grateful that that even happened? Uh, all the things of it's impacted your life so much and brought you to this place where you've been able to share the, the story and, and lift people in various ways you may not have otherwise. Is there any way, and you don't even have to answer this, or maybe just think about it on your own. Is there any aspect of the fact that even happened that you can be grateful that that happened? Or can we as people be grateful for things that happened? Uh, you know, can I be grateful that I went through a divorce? Or, you know, yeah, I guess you can if you weren't happy in a marriage. Or, But you're an innocent four-year-old. I don't know how you can be. Can you be grateful that that happened to you? Is a very kind of loaded and difficult question. Yeah, I, I will say for sure that um, I believe that what I went through has deepened me um, at a very young age mm -hmm. and gave me the perspective and the compassion and the sensitivity to... Uh, to be a, a good friend and um, a good mom and a good psychologist. For sure. And now I, I, I believe a, a good writer. Uh, so I learned so much from it and I do think I've helped people and I'm not sure exactly how I would have turned out if I had just been raised in the family that I came from. I'm not sure that I would have had all those characteristics. So mm -hmm. yes, actually, you're right. Hmm. There's something uh, interesting in how we frame things. And that, that's probably, I would venture a guess, that's, that might be the most difficult thing to wrap your head around now all these decades later of, can I be grateful for that itself? Uh, but um, as we get close to wrapping up here, is there anything you want to touch on um, your story and how you present yourself is so 
interesting. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours, but out of respect for your time, we won't. <laughs> we could do a sequel down the road maybe. But what, what final thoughts do you have <laughs> as it concerns all this, whether it has to do with uh, bullying or just trials in life and resilience or finding our own self-worth and self-love? What, what final thoughts do you, I'm just throwing some things out there, but what are your final thoughts you'd like to yeah. convey here? Yeah, so I think, um, and you alluded to this earlier, you know, with COVID, there is, I really truly feel there is nobody out there right now who isn't suffering. I, I, we are living in a time of, of at least in our, in our country, of, of national suffering, whether uh, for whatever reasons, and I, I won't go into all of them, but there's, there's a lot of pain and a lot of loss going on. And yeah. um, I, I think my, my thoughts on that are uh, to encourage people to get help if they need it. Um, and to encourage people to reach out to others um, because sometimes people really need that, uh, that loving call. Um, and, and, you know, my hope that sooner or later, and hopefully it's not too far down the road, this, this time will be past us. Just like all other times of great human suffering, like we'll, we'll get through this. Mm -hmm. may not be, you know, next week, but we will. Yeah. Well, and I, I, people in my audience know I've talked about, I have this great aunt. She'll be 101 next month. Uh, she lived through the Depression. She lived through World War II and rationing, and she built airplanes. She, she was on the news and on Ellen because she built airplanes into her 90s. She did all kinds of amazing wow. stuff. Yeah, she's lived quite the life, and we talked to her about this pandemic, and she said, oh, this is nothing. It's, it's not that she makes light of people <laughs> suffering, but this is after, she was born at the tail end of that last pandemic 100 years ago, yeah. <laughs> the Spanish flu. Yeah. She, probably, she doesn't remember a lot because she was a youngster, but uh, you know, living through everything. She was born in 1919. And uh, wow. so I just, uh, I, I just think that's something we can take your perspective as someone who is over the age of 50. That's a lot of years you've lived. And I don't mean that in any sort of uh, <laughs> disrespectful way. It's, uh, but you have quite hey, a perspective now. What's that? Yeah. I earned every one of these years. I'm good with it. You're done. <laughs> you deserve all the joy of every last drop of joy uh, life has to offer you. And it sounds like you've gotten to a very great, aligned, joyful place. And I'm, and I'm grateful and happy to hear that. Uh, so I'm, I, I'm just throwing in my last two cents as a bit of perspective too. Uh, and piggybacking on my great aunt, I just turned 40 myself. But uh, the years we've lived, I look back, you know, when I first got married and now I'm divorced, I'm a different person this person I was married to is a different person. People change and learn and grow and evolve and get into different things as they move through these years sometimes. Uh, but you, like you said, you earn every one of them and that's just something that happens in life. Uh, so I, I promise we can get through these things. And again, uh, appreciate you sharing all this and opening up quite a bit. And it takes a lot to be vulnerable like that. Uh, the book flashback girl Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. And uh, that book is actually out right now uh, on Amazon. Is there an audiobook version or are we working on that? Or 
there's going to be. We're working on it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but right now, it, there is paperback and there's um, an ebook as well. The Kindle version, so, things like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. So go visit uh, Dr. Lise DeGear at leesedegear.com. That's L I S as in Sam E D E G U I R E.com, leesedegear.com, and uh, pick up the book. And again, for our audience, we're grateful and flattered you spend time with us. And uh, until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit empowerhumans.com. We'll catch you next time.